The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Some years ago, a photo appeared in the pages of the New York Times showing a middle-aged man with a huge mustache and rather unkempt hair, dressed in formal evening clothes and sitting on a chair in the middle of a street, playing the cello. The caption explained that the street was in Sarajevo, Bosnia, in front of a bakery where three weeks before a mortar shell dropped into the midst of a bread line and killed 22 people. The cellist said he didn't know what to do about hatred and violence, except what he'd been trained to do with his cello. And so for 22 days, he'd been coming there, braving ongoing mortar and sniper fire to play Albanoni's haunting adagio in G minor. In Seattle, an artist saw that photo and at first reacted as any of us might. She thought the cellist completely mad and his gesture futile. But the image of him playing softly with his cello, one note at a time, like a pied piper trying to call out the rats that infest the cellars of the human spirit, finally made her ask this question. What can any of us do? Only that which we have learned to do, one note at a time. And so she organized 22 cellists to play Albanoni for 22 days in 22 different public places and then on the final day to gather in front of a window where she had arranged a display of 22 burned out bread pans alongside 22 freshly baked loaves of bread and 22 roses. The story of her artistry spread and Robert Fulgham, a UU minister in Seattle and the best-selling author of everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten saw it and then told me, John, keep this story alive. It is important pass it along, and here's why. Because in each of us, deeper than the cynical guardian of our woundedness, which wants to dismiss all courageous or spiritual action as foolish or futile, there is deeper in our souls and in the soul of every person we deal with and ability to hear the music. Just listen. Fulgham says that we must never ever regret or apologize for believing that when one of us decides to risk addressing the world with the truth and the love that is in us, the world just may 
stop doing what it is doing, and hear. There is far too much evidence to the contrary. And besides, when we cease believing this, surely the music will stop.
the bridge at Mostar was bombed and destroyed. It took years to rebuild. I cannot face the possibility of the future without acknowledging how much has been broken. The very idea of American democracy, of we the people, is like a bridge hundreds of years old, resting upon two great foundation stones, truth and trust. And attacks on them in recent years have been deep and deliberate. Truth has been abused and trust has eroded. Somehow I recall standing in this pulpit five years ago preaching on the question, what deserves our ultimate trust? And the answer I gave to cynics who would say nothing is that I could agree that no thing deserves our ultimate trust. That would be idolatry. And yet the interdependence of which we are but a fragile human part seems to me like an immense creative process, full of indeterminacy and uncertainty to be sure, viruses that mutate and spread and kill, violence that breaks out between humans. We creatures who can use our abundant freedom in such irresponsible ways. And yet, if there is one lesson I draw from this past week that remains essential in the spiritual life, it is this. Trust the process. You know, Martin Luther King actually wrote his doctoral dissertation on a Unitarian philosopher of religion, Henry Nelson Wyman, who used that term, creative process, in a cosmic and theological sense. And King, of course, often paraphrased another Unitarian, abolitionist Theodore Parker, who said that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Parker, who was also the source of Lincoln's great phrase about government of the people, by the people, for the people. On Monday of this week, in my nervousness about election day, I spent an hour and a half watching a documentary on YouTube called Bending the Ark, the vote, commissioned by our co-religionists at the Unitarian Church of Birmingham, Alabama, telling the story of the voting rights campaign in nearby Selma and the deaths within it of three martyrs for democracy. The first 26-year-old African-American Jimmy Lee Jackson who was murdered by police for daring to help his mother and grandmother register to vote. The second, Unitarian minister James Reeb, who was beaten to death after Bloody Sunday when John Lewis nearly died for coming to join the marchers over the Pettus Bridge. And Viola Liuzzo, the Unitarian layman woman who was shot while driving black and white civil rights workers between Selma and Montgomery. 
all of which you may recall moved President Lyndon Johnson finally to put the Voting Rights Act before the Congress. Ending his speech so memorably by quoting in his Texas drawl, we shall overcome. While Dr. King stayed in Selma to eulogize James Reeb. Monday night and again early Tuesday morning, I stood on a busy intersection in my neighborhood of the city, holding up a sign for my preferred candidate for district supervisor. And when someone holding a sign for her leading opponent joined me on that street corner, we chatted and talked about our respective concerns. Mine about the many storefronts now empty in the area and the desperate need for more affordable housing for the homeless on the streets. Hers, I was somewhat surprised to hear, were mostly about wanting the homeless kept in some other part of the city. I said that I thought our neighborhood needed to do its part for the whole. And we had to disagree about who might get us out of our respective fears. On Tuesday, in my morning meditations, I found myself going over a repeated phrase in the Hebrew Bible, which I've been teaching in a Zoom class lately. It's one that talks about replacing a heart of stone with a heart of flesh. We're all brokenhearted, writes Quaker teacher and activist Parker Palmer, to one degree or another, about one thing or another. Some about the well-paying factory jobs that are never coming back to their town, about their downward mobility or fears for their children, or the rapid changes in mores that seem frightening or disorienting. Others of us, of course, are brokenhearted about heartless family separations, ongoing racism, or sexual violence. But in his book, Healing the Heart of Democracy, The Courage to Create a Politics Worthy of the Human Spirit, Palmer wisely encourages conversations like the one I had on the street corner that acknowledge fear and brokenheartedness because that is the only basis from which we can rebuild trust across social divides. On election day afternoon, Gwen and I spent an hour on Zoom in the church group led by Mary Gans and Margot Campbell Gross on aging as spiritual opportunity. And we're reminded once again of something that my late friend Forrest Church often said that morally our lives are mortared together by our shared mortality, our vulnerability. The words human and humane coming from the same root as humus, the earth from which we emerge and to which if we are not in denial, we know we will return. And then on Wednesday, I spent an hour here on the steps of the church in an interfaith demonstration in support of the democratic process, holding up a sign reading, every vote counts, count every vote. And while I was here, 
my phone called me away as I learned of two deaths of friends in Pennsylvania. One, a colleague in the UU ministry, Reverend Bob Throne of Philadelphia, who succumbed to COVID at an age not far from my own. The other, our friend Rob Murray of Erie, Pennsylvania, whose heart gave out at 76. The father of our son-in-law, Andy. Rob, for over 30 years, was in charge of the juvenile courts in his city, which is about as close as a tender-hearted lawyer can get to being a sort of social worker. Andy had flown out there to say goodbye to his dad. I joked with several online that at least Rob and Bob both held on long enough so that their votes counted. By Thursday, of course, as the arc of the week went along, it was clear that any hopes for a blue wave were not materializing. One commentator opined that it was probable that many conservative voters distrusting both the media and pollsters had simply been lying low, avoiding sharing their opinions. Meanwhile, many on the left began expressing shock and disappointment that so many of their fellow citizens could vote in support of a leader who had been so self-serving and divisive. The best response I heard came from Princeton professor of African-American studies, Eddie Glaude, who pointed out what we should know about our own history, that fear and hate aren't new here. We've always been divided, he said. Two Americas? That's not new. It just has multiple dimensions. White and non-white, urban and rural, north and south, isolationist and internationalist, government activists and libertarians. And with the count continuing, I began finally to feel to feel some gratitude that despite the efforts of the divider in chief to so distrust and to stir up his followers even to violence, not even his favorite social media platform was allowing his untruths about rampant fraud to go unchallenged, nor were at least some members of his own party. When I reflect myself on American history, on the struggles for racial, gender, and social justice that I have written about and our own forebearers in faith took part in, I've certainly been taught this, that though over the long run we do make some moral progress, every step forward brings resistance and reaction, especially around race, Abolish slavery and watch Jim Crow segregate the freed into separate and unequal conditions. Pass a Voting Rights Act and watch the courts and states find new ways to practice voter suppression. Elect an Obama or say Black Lives Matter and watch supporters of white supremacy reemerge. As the arc moves back and forth, 
one should not be surprised or ever give up. By yesterday, when finally the media proclaimed that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are president and vice president-elect, I found myself reflecting on how rebuilding trust will now require something like an American equivalent of the process of truth and reconciliation South Africa went through. It wasn't easy or perfect there, and it won't be here. But two years ago, with members of our choir and Mark Sumner, Gwen and I visited South Africa. And one night, she and I had dinner with my Unitarian ministry colleague there, Gordon Oliver and his wife. Gordon is not only the retired minister of the Unitarian Church in Cape Town, he's also the former mayor of the city. In the fall of 1989, he led the entire white city council in marching with Archbishop Desmond Tutu to protest white-only elections. And that action, which mobilized 30,000 people, black and white, convinced the victors in the election, the white nationalists, the apartheid government, that they could no longer avoid negotiating a transition to majority rule. And they freed Nelson Mandela. Gordon then welcomed Mandela, freed from Robben Island at Cape Town City Hall, where he spoke to over 100,000, promising that a new and more democratic future would be marked not by revenge, but instead by facing history and working for reconciliation. As Gordon and I talked about how that process had been imperfect and perhaps incomplete, I received the news on my phone again of another death, that of Victor Carpenter, who once served our church in Cape Town and then came and served here in this pulpit. That morning, that Sunday morning, Gordon and I of the choir led what was indeed a celebration of the unsteady progress that must be made in the moral arc of history. When I preached here on ultimate trust, I was just back from Selma, where for the 50th anniversary of that march, I had joined some 500 plus Unitarian Universalists including the Birmingham Unitarians who decided that they had better get the witness of their elders on tape while they still had time. And as I walked over the Pettus Bridge myself, I remember being asked by two young college journalists why I'd come. They wanted to know what I had to say to young people about organizing for justice. And I talked about my work as national co-chair of Freedom to Marry and how that campaign had succeeded because it embodied two great principles. First, shared leadership. 
and real strategic thinking, something that Dr. King had worked at constantly, but that I pointed out the Occupy movement and campaigns that trust to spontaneity just brought about by cell phones sometimes lack. And second, we focused on real people and how unfairness to them broke our hearts, how they were leading loving lives, but were excluded from institutions that others could enjoy. In that sermon on trust, I spoke about what I'd learned from my teacher, the developmental psychologist, Eric Erickson. He says that the first psychosocial struggle for us all is between basic trust and mistrust. Some young children sadly never receive the consistent caring or parenting and nurture for trust in them to prevail. Their wariness, defensiveness, brittleness can result even in a narcissistic personality. But the good news for most of us is this, that at every stage of our development, when the issues become more complex about uh, developing a sense of competency and agency, a, a secure identity and intimacy, productivity, and finally integrity, there is a way in which we are each given the challenge and the chance to work again on trust versus mistrust. It occurs to me today that something similar is probably true in the slow struggle for authentic democracy in society. God knows we haven't entirely crossed that bridge yet, but the truths on these walls here in this great church remain. The rule of love, the kingdom of God, is already among and within us, if we would but feel it. And what is asked of us but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly together? In the coming months and years, we will be tested, we Americans, all of us, on our spiritual maturity and responsibility. We need to make a bridge over the troubled waters of our times and do what we can to rebuild foundational trust in truth, the truths of history and the truths of science. We need to defend the reality of our interdependence because denying it after all has only made this pandemic more deadly than it needed to be. We need to promote and practice a politics more of we and less of me. We need to cultivate habits of the heart that embody compassion for our fellow citizens, even those with whom we profoundly disagree, knowing that they are almost certainly as brokenhearted as we are, just in a different way. And in the meantime, we need to keep rebuilding the bridge and marching across it. 
There are always new versions of the Pettus Bridge to cross with courage. There are always religious and ethnic and ethical divides to cross as we do with our partners in faith and action. There are structures of democratic cooperation that although broken like the old bridge in Mostar, can be rebuilt again as it was. Made up now, not of hearts of stone, but by hearts of flesh, mortared together by a deeper compassion. So may it be. Amen. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.